the latest episode of The Claws Corner. Today's guest is a guitarist, singer, songwriter, producer, and author. He also pursues his own projects, which include the conception of an all-digital record company called Potomac Records, as well as an award-winning candle company called Shining Soul Candle Company. So without further ado, please welcome the author of The Moments That Make Us, the guitarist and singer of Evic, as well as being the guitarist for Brett Michael's solo band for the last 20 years. Of course I'm talking about Pete Evic. Pete, <laughs> welcome to The Claws Corner. How are you? I'm great, buddy. I'm great. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. No, I'm so glad. I, Dave Tedder, who represents you in some way, he said, Rich, I have a great guest for you. And I, you and I have been going back and forth. So I'm so happy to finally get this because doing my research on you has been so much fun. No, you, <laughs> it's interesting to hear. I can't no, wait to hear what you found out. Oh, yeah. Well, first, I want to start off with two songs that you recently released. One was a cover song, 99 Red Balloons. The other one was My Best Day. So first, let's start with the cover of 99 Red Balloons. Yes, sir. Why'd you, why'd you pick that song? Um, you know, I so the COVID thing was going on, and then the Ukrainian war broke out. Um, the short story of it is, uh, as a child of the 80s, I was terrified of uh, the nuclear conflict and the Russian stuff. I was terrified of it, and it haunted me for an enormous amount of part of my life. In fact, there's an entire chapter about it in my book, Moments That Make Us, that I wrote five years ago. Um, and the chapter in that book talks about what 99 Red Balloons meant to me as a child because it was an anti-war protest song, specifically the, 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 the Russian conflict. And so I woke up one morning and the world's still not recovered from COVID, really. And... Um, I saw the news headline CNN with the Russian and the word nuclear, like, and I just thought, are we really here again? <laughs> you know? I know, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. I couldn't comprehend it. And for about a week, it's all, I, I was obsessed with it to the point where everybody around me, my, my girlfriend, my business partners, Brett, no one could stand me. Like, <laughs> I, like I was running around like this child thinking the bombs were dropping again. I knew they weren't, but yeah. it, it, I was petrified of it as a kid. I can't explain the terror. And uh, so I, I, no one wanted anything to do with me. So I went in my studio and I just reverted back to a child and went back to, I was just jamming the song, just playing the song myself and goofing with it as, as therapy for me. And uh, then I started to mess around with recording it. Um, and the unique thing about it was when I recorded it, I hated it. Um, I did the vocal. I the I did the vocal. There, if you listen closely, there's two vocals. There's a low vocal and a high vocal. Very similar to Axl Rose's technique on like "Don't Cry" and some of that stuff and "Use Your Illusion," um, where it's not really a harmony. It's just the two different octave vocals. And uh, I put the low vocal on it, and the beginning sounded cool. But once the song kicked in, there was no energy to it. It just sounded kind of lame and then i did the high vocal and i listened to the high vocal by itself and it just was awful it just sounded it was just like some dude screaming you know what i mean uh and then i thought what can i do man now i've made all this effort let me see if i can do anything and i put both vocals up together and all of a sudden it felt to me magical it felt special um the vocals together blend it and it made the song sound uh worthy of letting people hear it so i shot the video for it and just kind of put it out there uh not wanting anything from it just just hoping that um hoping that the video you know there's a whole lot of people i know that that do this whole i don't want to watch the news anymore i don't watch the news i had to stop watching the news i get that but you also have to know i feel like 
let's be aware of what's going on. This mm -hmm. this wasn't an opinion. This invasion happened. This was real. You, you know what I mean? It wasn't. It, there weren't fear tactics. It, it, tactics. It wasn't like CNN or Fox were saying, "Oh, uh, Putin may drop a nuclear weapon." It was him saying it. Exactly. You know, and so I just thought, you know, maybe there's a bunch of people not watching the news that'll watch my video and at least see a little bit of what what's happening. And uh, so I so I put it out there. Yeah. No, I saw the video and I love that your version of it. I appreciate so, it. Now, are you using that song to raise money for Ukraine? Uh, not personally, because there's so many different ways to raise. I, you know, when I first put the video out, I just kind of said you can find your own way to, to donate. There's so many different ways. Uh, it was to me just to raise awareness that the conflict was real and happening. Uh, and, and then, and then hopefully you would find your, you know, if someone goes, Oh man, that's What can I do to help? They'll find a way to help. Yeah, no, exactly. And I love what you're doing because like you said, there's so many people, I don't even want to know about that, but I think people should be informed and people that m might not want to be informed can find out through music and through what you do. So I, I do love that you're doing that. And I think you're right. You're like, if, well, if they're really interested, they can find a way like, oh, we can give money this way or we can give help that way. So I yeah. love it. So I wanted to talk about your other songs. It's an original song, it's called My Best Days. I want to talk about how it's an inspiration to those who feel as if they have already lived their prime. Right, that's exactly it. So again, uh, you know, uh, my band Evic, we've been together for, you know, 25 years or whatever. Uh, I've been in Brett's band 20 years. And once I joined Brett's band, my writing and my producing and my focus all kind of went with him and his music. And I don't do a lot of music with my band, Epic Anymore Original Music. This was the first original song I'd written in maybe 15 years for my band. I mean, me and Brett have put out all kinds of records and stuff. But, um, and again, it was during COVID. And uh, COVID was a really weird thing for us musicians because we spent our lives on the road and engaging with people. And all of a sudden it was just gone, you know? Um, and so, but I kept hearing and watching and everybody talking about the old days, every, you know, there's songs and I've written songs about nostalgia too. Uh, in fact, the new Brett Michaels song that's coming out is called my best days. Or, or it's called, uh, it's called, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Back in the day. <laughs> and it's a song that, that uh, talks about, it's not this, this song is about the good times we had back in the day, but there's a whole lot of during COVID there was this whole kind of everything sucks now. I wish I was in high school again, or I wish I was in college again, or it became a very negative connotation. I just couldn't deal with the fact that my thought was like, if you guys really think that, that your best days are behind you, then, then you know, put a bullet in your head. And <laughs> you, you know, it, this can't be, we can't, this just can't be all of a sudden from here on out from 2020 on the world sucks. It just can't be, you know? So I wrote that song to convince myself that, that, that it has to be, uh, there has to be better days. And, and I just really hoped that even if I touched one person, I hope that one other person would hear that and go, fuck yeah, you're right. You're right. This, this, the best days can't be over yet. It was, it was important. It was a call to my friends, the people I love to say, we'll, we'll get through this. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I love that because I'm 54 right now and I am having the time of my life. I'm doing this show I, I have cerebral palsy, so I do motivational talks at libraries. I did a show at the Palace Theater, which is a small place in Waterbury, Connecticut. Before that, I did comedy. Then in my 20s, I was in band, so I wrote a book. I had a self-published book. 
So yeah, I when I talk to people who are my age, like, oh boy, I miss the good old days, like you just said. I said, <laughs> why? Some people think that this is what my opinion. I think a lot of people live the life they think is expected of them because they're so worried about what people think of them. They're like, oh, I'm too old for that. I said, if you're not neglecting your responsibilities, why do you have to stop having fun? As long as you're healthy, you can still do what you want, you know, if you're not hurting anybody, but you're just yeah. having fun. So many people. So I've always had that mentality. And I love the fact that you wrote a song about that because so many people, especially as they get older, oh, yeah, I missed those. Things. You said the college yeah. days, high school. It's like, really? College or high school and college, those were not the best days of my life. Right now, I'm having the time of my life. And I yeah, I'm glad you did it. I'm glad yeah. that means a lot that you understand it. And congratulations on writing a book. I, yeah, I can't check it out myself, man. Yeah, it's on Amazon, self published. And because I'm it's it's in the vein of the Twilight Zone with a little bit more gorgeous. I love like some of my favorite horror movies are like Evil Dead, it has a lot of humor in it with some gore, and it's just it's like over oh, so, the top. So fun. You wrote you wrote a fiction story. Yeah, so I wrote a fictional book. It's uh, five Confessions of a Frenetic Mind, Five Tales of Blood Curdling Terror. It's really <laughs> it's not it's not really that blood curdling. It's just uh that was the title that gets people's attention, but it's a it's a sure. more in the vein of the Twilight Zone where it's got twist endings, you don't really know what's gonna happen, but there's a lot I did stand-up comedy for five years, so I have a very good sense of humor and I injected a lot of humor into it. So it, I think that people it has something for everybody. Why do you not do stand-up anymore? Uh, I don't know. I sort of got bored with it. I was doing it just for fun. And what happened was I did a show and somebody said, Rich, you'd be a huge inspiration to my students. I said, where do you work? He said, a place called Abilities Beyond for people with special needs. So I went there, did a couple of shows there. Somebody saw me there and said, oh my God, I would love to have you work at this library. And that led to another place, which led to the Palace Theater. And then that sort of caught on. So with, with that, I get to do a little bit of inspiration and make it fun. So I get a mixture of both. So I think I sort of just got bored with it. And instead of just saying, well, I'm going to do it because I, you know, I feel like I should be doing this. I said, let me do what I actually want to do. And then right. that led to this, which is, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, every, every time I do something, it opens up another door to something else and I love it. And so right That's now nice. I'm doing a, I started a radio show and that because of COVID, the radio station, it was a local community station. It shut down where they couldn't allow people that they didn't know in there. So my last guest said, Rich, I'll, he's my editor for this. He goes, I'll create a YouTube channel for you so we could do that. And then now I'm able to get guests like you. I've had D. Wallace, Adrian Barbeau, Ted Neely from Jesus Christ Superstar. So guests that would never, ever even hear of me. Now I'm able to get people like that through Zoom. So COVID, in a way, actually worked out for me. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great story. Oh, thank you. So let's get back to your story because you have, as I mentioned before, you have so many great stories. So we talked about My Best Days. That was released. And I know it's got the, it was, Heavily influenced by uh, Bon Jovi. Uh, on correct? purpose. Completely. Yes. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, you're, I mean, just like me, I'm a huge Bon Jovi fan, and I know you are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when, when I, when I, I, most of my solo music really sounds Bon Jovi influenced. And when I sat down to write this one, I was just, I just went, man, it's, this is what's coming out. But it just sounds so much like, uh, uh, a combination of just older from Bon Jovi and Blood on Blood. And uh, so I went as far as to uh, their bass player, Hugh McDonald's a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And I went as far as to contact him and send him the song. And, and I, I said, I know you can't play on it. That becomes weird, but <laughs> can you write the bass line for me? And then I'll, I'll play on it or get someone else to play on it. Uh, so that, because those Bon Jovi bass lines are iconic, you know, oh, yeah. 
and uh and they really have a lot to do with the way the way his music sounds so uh so hugh wrote the bass line for me sent me back the notes and i had my bass player play on it and uh, that really helped that was really neat to have it uh you know um the only part that that i didn't try to make it sound like bon jovi was a guitar solo i just did exactly what i would have done anyway but i but the influence is there <laughs> you know yeah. uh and uh and then once i had the song down then i thought oh let's take it even a step farther. And uh, as I was producing it, I kept a couple of Bon Jovi songs in my Pro Tools file that I would kept referencing back to the production from, you know, back in the day, make it sound like it came off of the New Jersey record, yeah. you know? So on purpose, you know, that was kind of my way of being nostalgic. That was my back in the day. The sound yes. of it was the nostalgic part. And the message was don't look back in the day, you know? So <laughs> Well, we're, we're going to talk about Brett Michaels. I still want to talk about your band for a little bit. But before that, I want to talk about all these bands that you grew up listening to. It must be surreal to be playing with them, being friends with them, going on tour with them. That must be a great feeling. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's 20 years later. And I remember the first year, like six gigs into playing with Brett, um, Slaughter was our opening act one night. It didn't make any sense to me, right? Um, it was weird. Uh, Dana is now... Uh, I'd consider him one of my great, great friends. Um, the guys in Warrant, the guys in Firehouse are, um, are, are great, great friends to me. And uh, I have, I've made so many, you know, I, I, I text back and forth with Ace Freely. You know, that's, that's fucking weird, right? You know, uh, <laughs> the, the one story I have though, is uh, we, uh, you know, my, my, my favorite man in the whole world is the Sammy Hagar era Van Halen. Yes. And um, when Brett decided to make this record called Jamming with Friends, and the idea was that he would have guests on every single song. And uh, on one particular song, Ace Frehley and Michael Anthony both play on the song. It's our remake of Brett's song, Nothing But a Good Time. All right. And uh, because I produce and engineer those records for Brett, uh, I had a mobile studio at the time, and I was flying out to these people's houses and and cutting their cutting their tracks and stuff um and i had such an amazing day at michael anthony's house but till till that day it had been communication via email and management and stuff like that and i've met michael several times before because we've opened up for sammy's band and stuff but um we, we we're at mike's house and or we're at mike's warehouse and we were finished the track and when the track was done mike said uh here let me give you my phone number and I actually looked at him and said, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and I actually, I actually, he goes, what do you mean? You know? And, uh, and I said, Mike, I, I know I'm a professional. I'm here as Brett Michaels, guitar player and producer. And you've always seen me, uh, how you, uh, you know, I respect what you're saying, but I said, it's going to take one night of me being drunk <laughs> and, and just going nuts and texting you nonstop. And I'm going to end, you know, what I consider something awesome that I even I know you, and he just laughed at me, and I, I never took Mike's number. <laughs> I don't know why I, I don't know why I took Aces, but I took you know. But uh, um, yeah, it's surreal. It, it every day it's it's surreal, but it's also surreal to just be a Brett's fan because in my high school talent shows, I played those Poison songs. Mm -hmm. I you know every high every talent show in high school, I played a Poison song. Uh, I was a I was a Poison fanatic, so you know sometimes. I, I look over and we're playing every rose in front of 50, 60,000 people. And, uh, and it's him, you know, yeah, that's <laughs> and, and, 
and that that's crazy to me. Uh, but he's 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 the best friend I've ever had, and he, and he's. It, 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 there's so much about that guy that no one doesn't know. I mean, everyone loves him. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anyone yeah. thinks anything bad about him, but it doesn't even scratch the surface of, of who and what that guy really is. No one has any idea. And, uh, but it's, it's surreal, man. It's, it's, you know, the other night we played with three doors down um, uh, in Panama city. And that was cool. We played in Atlanta and the guys from lit and Hoobastank showed up just to come mm-hmm. to the show and hang out. Uh, it, 20 years later, sometimes it's all still surreal. You know, we, me, me and Brett, uh, and our band were able to go visit Loretta Lynn. We're tight with her family. Oh, wow. Two weeks before she passed away, we were at her house. As far as I, as far as I know, I don't know, but because it kind of, it came sudden, no one, we knew she was ill, but no one thought it was coming that quick. But I don't know that Brett may have been the last person to see her of other than her family. You, yeah. you know I mean? right. And, uh, and, you know, just sitting there with her, that day and then now you know here she is uh, now it's a month later but um who has that kind of experience who who who, what rock and roll guitar player has spent you know thanksgiving at loretta lynn's ranch or you you know um it's neat that's all i can say it's neat (laughs) well when you ask me that question there's nobody i know that could ever say that story except for you right now yeah. Have, you ever, have you ever met, just speaking of musicians, have you ever met Johnny Cash? Because for country, I'm not really a diehard country fan, but like some of the people I do, like Loretta Lynn, I love, I love uh, Merle Haggard, I love Johnny Cash. Did you ever get a chance to sit down no. and talk to him? Okay. Never at all. No. <laughs> I want to get back to Sammy Hagar and Mike Lennon. So I do love the David Lee Roth years, but I saw the Sam and Dave tour, which was probably about now, now it's probably about 15, 20 years ago. I can't remember when it was. Oh, that was a lot longer than 15 years ago. Okay. Was, so yeah. I was not in Brett's band, I don't think, when that oh, happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, the reason I brought that up was because um, they were going back and forth, like being headliner and opener. And, uh, but Sammy Hagar, just, just you can tell he's just a fun guy, just out there, wants to have fun. And he, he made Dave look like, like a clown. Exactly. That's the point I was going to make. It's like they, people were walking out in droves during Roth. And every, I, mean, I think that, unfortunately, over the years, his ego got the best of him because, like I said, I like that era of Van Halen, but you could just tell, like, Sam, and even Michael Anthony, you could just tell he's a, they're up there having a great time. And it's all about fun. Like he even said one time in an interview, I don't really do this for the money. I just do it because I want to. And you can yeah, just yeah. Yeah, I, you love know, I, I saw that tour. And <laughs> and I, I it's a weird thing. I knock on Dave a lot, but I'm a fan of that music, too. Van Halen is my favorite band. Hagar Van Halen is my first favorite band. Roth Van Halen is my second favorite band. You know, I, I love I love it all, um, and I love who Dave was. And when yeah. Dave left Van Halen uh, and did Eat Him and Smile, I thought, oh fuck, he's gonna win this. Like like like, there was nothing like Yankee Rose. It was the most powerful, greatest thing I had heard and seen in my entire life. Right. Um, but then Why Can't This Be Love came out and it blew my fucking mind. Um, at 5150, but the single is Why Can't This Be Love. But yeah. uh, but it, my thing about Dave is like, have you ever watched Dave on um, the the uh, the uh, Joe Rogan podcast? I have. Yeah, I listened to him several times, which is sometimes it's difficult to get through. I want to, sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say there's one part where he went to take a piss and Joe Rogan, he goes, he says, boy, that guy's out there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's amazing. <laughs> but my point is, uh, there's part of me that thinks Dave is the biggest clown in the world. Like, what the fuck is wrong with that guy? But 
he's on a different level. He knows something we don't know. And, and it's not, it's, that can't just be being a clown. He's, he's transcended to something else. And he's somewhere, you know, he studies a lot. He's been around the world and he, he took in the martial arts and he takes in culture and he takes in all that stuff. There's no denying he does that stuff. So he's like this, I, I, every time he opens his mouth, I just want to punch him in his face. because I can't, but there's this underlying that we're the idiots. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean, because sometimes he's talking like, what the hell is he just rambling? And then later on, I'll be reading something. Oh, that's what he's talking about. So he knows exactly what he's saying. But like you said, he's on a different level. And I agree. I mean, like with the whole martial arts, he moved to Japan. He trained with the best. I mean, he just whatever he gets into, he does a thousand percent. He'll just become. Yeah, yeah, I definitely know what you're saying. It's like, shut up. Why do you say this? And then you realize sometimes like. All right, now I know what you like. It could take a little while for you to get them. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I don't have any interest in ever even hanging out with that dude. Like it's too much for me. I can tell. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, but um, but Sammy, Sammy, you, you you walk in a room and he makes you feel like he's your best friend. And I never forget uh, we filmed. Uh, he invited Brett to be on his TV show, The Rock and Roll Road Show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at Brett's house today. They did that, and Sammy was nice enough to let me be on part of the show but uh i stepped aside with sammy i said sammy you know we've played a bunch of shows together and we know each other and sammy's always nice to me but we didn't have a minute to speak you know you know what i mean and at this day we filmed all day long so we had plenty of time to just speak and i i said i said sam i just want to tell you man i remember the moment in 1986 that they released why can't this be love on the radio i i remember the moment and it i was only in uh, eighth grade in middle school but it changed every single thing about me and my life it that moment i heard those synthesizers go wah, 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 and the guitar come in it, it my life changed on a different path forever and sammy goes like this he goes mine did too <laughs> and it, it was a, it was a neat moment because you don't think of that perspective from the artist thinking that day changed his life forever too because the world was waiting the world was waiting to see what what it was going to be, and it was accepted with with open arms by the you know that was their only Van Halen's first number one record. Everyone forgets that sometimes. I think you know, oh, yeah. Jump was number one song, but that was the only number one record. And um, you know, he he's just a the experience to experience Sammy Hagar is like nothing you've ever thought of. And experience partying with him and Brett at the same time. Oh it's, my god. Yeah, you don't. You don't. You, the personalities are so large. You just sit and watch, and you know, you know. But but super wonderful time, and both of them are very concerned with making sure you're having a good time, which is why they're the greatest front men left on the planet. You know. Well, speaking of that, that's a great segue. What I want to talk about next, then, because you have a story, and I want to hear about this. There was one time was uh, Stephen. They wanted either Brett Michaels or Sammy Hagar to. Re, um, not replace him for good, but just for a couple shows, Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. Let's talk uh, about that. You, you watched Chuck's podcast, didn't you? One Chuck's of them. I, I, I was going through a lot of different things to find okay. out more yeah. information about you. So. You know, that's not really my story to tell. I just know that when it happened, uh, at, at the time, HK Management that manages Poison was, um, was ma uh, also managing Aerosmith. And uh, Steven was going to go solo. And, and do that country thing and they were talking about replacing him temporarily just so they could continue to go out and what i don't know enough of the detail but i know that i know that sammy hagar's response was that 
what an honor to ask me that, but I'm not going to just become the guy that replaces other famous lead singers. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And then Brett was just basically like, you know, what, what an honor, but who could fill Steven Tyler's shoes? Like Brett was just like, thanks, but I'm not even, I'd be crucified by the fans just to even think that I could step in those shoes, you know, much like Axel with Brian Johnson, you know, he did a great job but there's still an enormous amount of people like you had no fucking business doing that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, they, neither one of those guys wanted to touch that with a 10 foot pole. <laughs> nope. I definitely don't blame them because uh, they have their own career, especially like what you said about Sammy, because Sammy already replaced David Lee Roth and they're just going to always say, Oh, there's another lead singer who's going to replace. Like, I just, and I, what I love about him is that he'll just jam with everybody. He has all these different things with his tequila. Yeah. Just, like you said, uh, he's just having fun. And it's funny. Cause you mentioned, um, when he first joined Van Halen, the only, I think that was their first release, which was probably on VHS back then, but was filmed where I live in Connecticut. It was New Haven, no, New, New, New Haven. Haven. New Haven. It wasn't New Haven. It was New Halen, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. We're going to call this place New Halen. We have 10,000, here tonight. Yeah. Let me hear you scream New Halen. I remember it word for word, man. Live without, I was at the first show. They recorded two shows. It took the best from each one, but I was at the first show and I, yeah. I said the same thing too. I was kind of, hesitant it's like i don't know how good it's going to be and then when that album came out i said yeah i love this it's it's great it's yeah. completely different and it's funny you mentioned acdc because just those are two bands right off the bat i could think of when they replaced an iconic lead singer somebody else comes in and they're just as good or even better like with yeah, right. scott and brian johnson david lee roth sammy hagar and most bands they get a new singer like yeah it's not the same i mean an example right now for me would be queens i think jeff tate it's such a great vocalist and the other guy sounds like him, but to me, it's just not Queens, right? So, yeah, but, yeah. 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 There's so much debate about the Queens, right? Thing. And it's not I up know. my alley. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a, Jeff's a nice guy. I've met him and I, yeah. and uh, I've met some of the guys in Queens, right? We played with them. Not my thing. Queens, right? not my music. So I can't, uh, I can't, I can't tell you. I just know that I know that Jeff's the real deal. Yeah. And I know that that singer is real. The other one's real, real fucking good. I know that. Well, no, he definitely is. He just opened up for Juice. They're opening up for Juice Priest. They played Connecticut. I didn't go, but of course, everybody films it and puts it on YouTube now. So I watched it. And I said, yeah, I mean, if, I, if, you, if you're not, if you're just listening to the audio, like, wow, is that Jeff Tate back in the band? But yeah, it's just, uh, when you, I think ACDC and even Van Halen completely changed their styles for the most part. And they're just as good or better. So I, it Without, I mean, back in black, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. That was one of the first, I think, I mean, I loved listening to the old stuff with Bon Scott. Then when that came out, I said, oh, my God, I love this. You know, you shoot me all night long, Hell's Bells, just everything about it. Yeah. Incredible. I want to get back into your music for a bit because um, I want to talk about why the song that you co-wrote with Miley Cyrus was called Nothing to Lose. Why that led you to not write music for a long time. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, I don't know that it led me to not write music for a long time. Um, it was such an incredible experience. You know, uh, we didn't co-write that with Miley. Brett wrote the song and then I, uh, I, I had a lot of input. I wouldn't say that I co-wrote it. I, it was Brett's baby. It was okay. Brett's baby. Um, but we're a team and, and I had some influence and input and I, and I did, I did engineer and produce the record. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, um, and then we had Miley come in and sing on it later. Ah. And um, 
I remember that day. That was incredible going to Henson studios and working with her. And uh, it, it was a really neat honor because she was a young new, not new. She was really incredibly established, but she was a young artist and all her team around her kept making the joke about uh, they were going to take me with them. They were going to take me from Brett because she felt comfortable working with me as a producer in the studio. Mm-hmm. And that, that there, it was so great. And the song was great. Um, the song was great very emotional because I was going through a dark time in my life and going through my divorce. And, um, and so, so uh, the song comes out and that week it's the number one rock song added to radio. Uh, It's Bon Jovi had released a song that week and Nickelback and Nickelback. This was before the, we hate Nickelback movement <laughs> uh and uh and and our song was the number one added to radio above bon jovi and nickelback and um uh, at the time so when i joined brett's band my band evic what we came it was our, it was a package all of us came uh as me and brett's friendship grew me and my guys friendship started to dissolve uh they're still my best friends now but there were cracks in it. Uh, there were two buses and me and Brett were on one bus and everyone else was on another bus. Uh, me and Brett were going into the studio ourselves. Uh, I was playing all the parts, programming drums. It, 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 it became, it, you could just, you see what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So uh, I had, I had, I was on an island with Brett, not an island, I'm figuratively speaking, metamorph, uh, whatever the word is, uh, speaking. I was on an island with Brett. Uh, I had gone through a divorce and me and my friends weren't as close as we used to be. And the song came out. I was in a parking lot in Iowa the morning that this news came. And uh, I went and told Brett. And Brett thought the news was great, but Brett comes from, this was right. This was, this was post streaming age where no records sell anymore, Mm -hmm. but it was also, still new enough into the streaming age that there was still hope that your record may actually sell. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, uh, you know, it was like, Brett, we're number 11 on billboard off the, off the debut. I gave him all this news and he asked me how many units it sold. And, and, uh, you know, back in the day, if we would have had that success on a debut, it would have been a million copies. Mm-hmm. And, it was great. I mean, again, we were number 11 on the charts. It was number one out of the radio, but it wasn't a number that excited Brett the way I was excited. Yeah. Right. So Brett kind of just went back to bed with the news. Uh, and I couldn't call my wife. She didn't give a fuck. And <laughs> the band, that was just one more great thing that happened to me that didn't happen to them. You, you know what I'm and uh, so I was sitting there in this parking lot of Iowa all by myself, man. And it was, I was having what I considered the moment, the greatest moment of my entire life musically, the the achievement. I beat fucking Bon Jovi. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, uh, or I was part of something that beat Bon Jovi. Yeah. And, uh, and it was empty and it was lonely. And I, like a baby, I just sat there on the bus and cried, man. And uh, it, it, made me very disenchanted about the whole thing for quite a while. Yeah. I, 
definitely <laughs> can imagine why. Yeah. You're excited. There's really nobody that you can share it with that has that same excitement for you because I mean that is a big accomplishment, especially in, in these days. I want to talk about that right now then because the how music has evolved over the years. Now with streaming, obviously you're not going to be making money when people are streaming and downloading your music. You have to go on tour most of the time, and that's where you get all your money from selling the merchandise and yeah. So. Uh, so when do you more because I, I was talking to some other bands that I've interviewed and they were saying that because people have it's like an ADD nation now where people said instead of releasing one whole album like three months later like oh yeah I almost forgot about them so they like to do like one song one month another song the second month oh yeah so yeah. is that is that the way to do it now I believe I've always believed that like yeah. like I'm into that way when it's done I want the world to hear it like I get a little anxious and, and ready to push it out so i enjoy the way that part of it works and you can get hung up making a record look at what happened to def leppard how many years it took to make hysteria and i understand the tragedy they went through but uh you know and then everything gets grouped into that record. like think about the van halen material uh, uh how, how do i say it there's a lot of stuff that gets grouped into oh that was van halen one or that was van halen two mm -hmm. uh when you just release a song, it's just a song and it becomes timeless. It's not necessarily grouped into the era with the rest of the record. You, no one's, you, I don't know that I'm wording that right. I'm usually better at making my explanation, but I, the point of the fact is I, I enjoy the, just write a song and release it. So, here, so here, let me, I get where I'm trying to say with this now. Sometimes when you're making a record, you get, you get consumed in making the entire record sound like that record. Mm-hmm. This record sounds like Invasion of Your Privacy. This record sounds like Dancing Undercover. Yeah. But no song starts like that. You don't write, when you actually start the, a song, you're just writing a song. And then that cover, that, 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 that lid you try to put on it may ruin the song. The song, if you're just writing a song to write a song and you're not trying to put it in the same basket as much other songs, creativity opens up. You don't have to go, oh, this is the drum sound for this record. You know, or this is these are the 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 guitar sounds for this record. And Brett's a lot like that. Brett's a lot. He 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 just he doesn't care what the trends are. He doesn't care production wise. He doesn't care what anything sounds like. He wants to make records the way he hears in his head. And what he hears in his head every day is something different. Mm -hmm. So one day we may be writing something that sounds like a vintage Poison song. And then one day he may pull up a fucking Nirvana record, believe it or not. And go, man, remember how these drums sounded on this record? Let's do this. And then he'll pull up a Tim McGraw record and go, oh, we should do like this. And and when you're releasing one song at a time, you can do that. When you're releasing a record, you gotta, you, you're confined to the sound of that record. So I, so I like the new way. Yeah. You know what's uh, funny you said that? Because I heard Paul McCartney one time say this. He said every time he was going to record a new record, he would listen to the last one so he would not repeat himself. He was always trying to do something different. And I want to ask you this question because I've interviewed a lot of authors. I know a lot of authors and they said that when they hit it big with one novel, basically all they're asked to do is write the same novel with a different title. Yeah. Did you ever have that kind of pushback from the record companies, record labels saying, no, we, this was popular. Just stick with that. Or they give you the freedom to say, you know what? We trust you. Write what you think is good. You know, you've got, I've never gone through that me personally, because I've never had, my own every rose has a storm where they'd say you got to write another one, but I know it happens. 
I know yeah. it happens. Uh, I know that I know that we've been asked to write something like this or write something like that. It, you know what I mean? And if Brett's asked nine times out of 10, it's the first thing he's asked, he's going to do the exact opposite of, you know, um, but it's certainly, but also as a songwriter, there's a formula you know, I, I you know, it, once you write something like every rose, how do you not think, well, that worked the first time. Let's try it again. Mm -hmm. Right. How do you formula is everything. It, it, it is, um, you know, and then you look at Hootie and the Blowfish, right? Hootie and Blowfish came out and destroyed the world. They their impact on the music industry was as big as Nirvana. They th that record was giant and it changed the face of music too. Uh, and uh, they went a completely kind of different direction on that second record, and it did nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it, so it's it, so it's interesting. Formula is important to a certain extent, but growing and creativity is is important too i i don't have the right answers to that no one can do it right and nothing you know no the i i don't i i'm so far down the road now i don't know what the actual question you asked was but yeah no one ever put that kind of pressure on me so to speak yeah uh, but you've but, seen it happen yeah i've seen it happen yeah well just an example of that would be uh john melkip he said he hated the name johnny cougar but he says i'm 20 years old they're offering me a deal. They hated my name. So of course I'm going to sign. And that's when he finally, you know, John Cougar Mellencamp, then finally John Mellencamp. And it was funny. I was listening to an interview with uh, Clive Davis not that long ago. And he was saying one of his biggest regrets was he turned down John Mellencamp because he thought he sounded too much like Bruce Springsteen. And he goes, he, he was at a, some party and he goes, man, I want to apologize. He goes, no, you actually did me a favor. He goes, that made me better. I wanted to become even better than what I was. I, so it's just, it's funny, like, you know, what, and I think another thing too is people love familiarity. They hate when yeah. somebody changes. So I don't think you could ever have a band that evolved. I'm going to use the Beatles again as an example, from the Love Me Do days to Sgt. Pepper's. A band like that now would be like, oh, you know what? Let's find four other guys that look, sound, and act just like them. Yeah. Instead of, they won't give them a chance to evolve over years. Well, it's funny you say I. What you just said is something I've been saying for years and years and years and years. Why that there's no there's no Beatles and there's no Zeppelin and there's no Van Halen and there's no Kiss anymore is we grew with those bands. Van Halen one's a terrible record. Great playing record doesn't sound great, and they were kids. And Van Halen two was the next step. Mm -hmm. And Fair Warning was the next step or uh, uh, Women and Children First. And with every record, you grew a little more with the band. Now today, you get the finished, per the best polis polished product that's ever going to be right from the start. Mm -hmm. So there's nothing to, there, you don't grow with it. Everything is as great as it's going to be. You look as great as you can be and you sound as great as you can be. And the production is super, super polished. Everyone can make a record. I, I make records and me and Brett have recorded records on his fucking airplane. So it's, you know, it's, it's not, you don't need that giant budget anymore. You don't need, it's to appear as a star is accessible. So there's no growth. And I believe growth is, I, I believe growth is important. I, I think the reason I love Kiss so much is because, you know, I was there listening to Kiss and they were terrible. They were the worst band in the world. Everyone knows it. And, and they and they grew and they got bigger and larger and every step of the way <clears throat> you felt like you were growing with them and that's what a fan used to feel like it, you know that doesn't happen there's not a band that comes out today that you go oh i wonder if they'll get better on their second record they're just what they are already 
Mm-hmm. Yep, I know. Unfortunately, now with the way the record company, how what they do is they'll, they'll have like pre-packaged bands where they'll just get four people that look alike, sound alike, act alike. And um, I want your opinion on this, though. What do you think of these reality shows where people want to become instant stars, like The Voice and uh, American Idol? To me, I don't think that they can appreciate the struggle, the you know, traveling in a van, going on tour, this and that. They just want to go on stage a couple of weeks, then go on a world tour, and they think that like they're rock stars. To me, I just, I, it's good for some people, but for me, I just don't think it, it. I think it's more harmful to the people, the musicians and the artists, than it would be good for them. Well, a few have made it work. Daughtry yeah. made it work. Daughtry, Kelly Clarkson made it work. Well, I don't know that. Kelly, I don't know that Kelly hit the road and worked like a rock star. Daughtry hit the road. Okay. And he went out there and he worked it. Uh, and he, Daughtry is the closest thing we have to that old school Van Halen of this modern era where we've been able to watch his career grow and blossom. You, you know what I mean? <clears throat> Although those records did sound good right from the bat. I think you had Chad Kroger producing that stuff from Nickelback, I think. But um, uh. I don't know that it hurts the artists that win that stuff. Yeah. I think what it hurts is the artist aspiring to be like that. Yeah. Well, I think that's what I was more thinking of. It's like they're, they're not, they're, you know, they'll go through the suffering years to, to, for the growth. They just think that they're a star immediately and it's just, yeah. you know, they're not ready it, for it. I think if you win that, you want it. So good for you. Yeah. But it gives a lot of false hope to a lot of people sitting around home that think that they're going to just go and sing on that TV show. And it happened for them. So I think the damage is more about the people watching, thinking they can be like Kelly Clarkson than it is to them, you know. Uh, but it's a it is a rude awakening to I guess you're right. It's a rude awakening to a lot of them that that think that their 15 minutes on TV is gonna lead to a Led Zeppelin style career, and it just doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to uh, Pete Evick earlier. And we've mentioned this band several times. I want to talk about how your mother's love of Elvis. And your love of Kiss helped jumpstart your love of music. <laughs> yeah, my mom, my mom and Elvis, man. <laughs> she loved him. <laughs> she used to see him before he was famous, which is a neat story in itself. You know what I mean? Um, she knew all of him and and you know, her that story, she's passed away. But I, I told too much of that story in the past interviews and I shouldn't have done it. But uh <clears throat> my my mom loved Elvis, put a guitar in my hand, and I just didn't give a shit. Um, I didn't give a shit. And then I saw Kiss on TV in 1978, and I and all of a sudden I went, oh, I got a guitar in my closet. I got one of those, and uh, they were superheroes. And that that my mom my mom surrounded me by music, and I understood what she. I I understand now what she wanted from me, but uh, I didn't get it at first. And then when I saw Kiss, I went, oh, I can do what my mom wants me to do, but I can do it like this i can breathe fire you know and uh and so the cocktail of the two set me on my path yeah well that's what i love about kiss as as you mentioned like I mean, they're not the best musicians in the world but they also they know the importance of a great stage show they're very theatrical and they're just a lot of fun too so to me yeah. i always and i want your opinion on this too because for me i always tell people i said there's a difference between best musician and best entertainer and i'm gonna give oh, you two i'm gonna give you two examples for me and they're i have very eclectic taste so you might laugh at the second one but two of my favorite entertainers are one paul mccartney 
I just think that he's, I just saw him at Fenway Park in the last summer, right before his 80th birthday, two days before. He's joking around. He's dancing as much as he can. He had stories for everything. He did 35 songs over three hours long, puts on a fun show. And the other guy, other end of the spectrum, puts on a great show. Not the best musician, but Barry Manilow. I've never seen Barry. Uh, he puts on it, or he did at the time. I know he's uh, people have seen him lately, but I know he's had hip surgery and he's getting older. But he used to put on such a fun show. He had, you know, the, he wrote a lot of commercials before that. And he just has fun with the audience. And I think that some people, I, I, I'm going from personal experiences, some people think that being the best musician is the most important thing. A lot of people are just sitting there watching, like, I'm bored. They, you yeah. can be the best musician. You got to put on a show, get the audience involved. And that's why I brought that up. So for you, do you have a favorite entertainer, favorite musician? I have a lot of opinions about this. Um, okay. Because I'm a musician uh, and Brett's an entertainer. Mm -hmm. um, not to say Brett's not a musician. He'd blow your fucking mind if you knew what he really knew. Yeah. Right. But he also knew that what he wanted to be was an entertainer. Right. Uh I love being a musician, but I'm a musician because I want to be a musician. Mm -hmm. My job is to entertain, you know, CC DeVille made a whole lot more fucking money than Ingbe Malmsteen. Exactly. It's funny. You said that I was going to bring him up because I've seen Ingbe and he is an awesome guitar player, but I saw him open up for Twisted Sister years ago, and I said, all right, we know you're a great guitar player. Just play a song. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. That, he is the one person I was thinking of when you said, when I when I was making this comment. That's funny. But yeah, yeah. I agree. And yeah, C.C. DeVille, yeah. I, mean, I love me, Poison songs. They're a lot of fun on stage. And he but let me tell you this, man, and I've known this for a long time. C.C. is every bit the musician Malmsteen is. And he can play that Malmsteen stuff. He sits in the backstage all day long in his dressing room, and he he loves the guitar more than anyone I've ever seen. CC plays that guitar from the moment he wakes up to the minute he goes to bed. It's similar to the stories you hear about Edward Van Halen. Uh, you know, Edward would take the thing into the bathroom. I've never seen CC take it into the bathroom, but he loves it. Yeah. But CC's the hybrid. He's the entertainer too, right? Yeah. And I believe that that I that I got that from CC and Edward Van Halen. Edward knew how to entertain, you know. So so there is a way to be a hybrid, but it are two completely different things. And CC will never show you the musician he is. You're always just going to see the entertainer. Um, and Edward Edward, for all we know and everything we saw, there was he was still way better than we ever knew. Like mm -hmm. you know. Um, I'm an entertainer guy. I I will pick fucking Kiss over Dream Theater every fucking day of the week. I hate to say it. And those guys are great. They are. You, you know what I mean? Uh, it, but I am a guitar player, and I like to play that stuff. When I'm sitting at home, I love to play my Malmsteen licks, and I love to play all that stuff. But I I don't have any use for it on the stage. Yeah. yeah, you don't need you don't feel the need to prove yourself. Everybody knows you're good and you don't have to go up on stage. Like to me, sometimes I think he wanted to prove how great he really is. I mean, maybe he's doing it for a different reason, but that's the impression I got. It's like, okay, we know you're yeah. you were 19 years old and Alcatraz came out, and just you know, you're you're a genius, but it's just uh <laughs> play play some songs. So uh, another one that's what was that? Well, well then you have the the 
to me, the most unique hybrid of them all is Steve I. Yes. And that's why when you mentioned Eat Him and Smile, I was thinking the same thing about Roth. They said he's got Billy Sheehan, he's got Greg Bissonette, he's got Steve Vai. That's the ultimate band. And then when Van Halen came out, it was the same. It was I thought for sure Roth, oh, he got the upper hand in this one. Yeah, yeah, Because of, like, all those musicians that he played with. Vi puts on, even his instrumental solo guitar tours, puts on a, a show, man. He It's... Mm -hmm. And he's animated. It's in his soul. It's it, he's incredible. But he gives you a show, and and now that Edwards passed, I can say without argument, he's the greatest living guitar player. If you ask me, Steve Vai. You know, uh, I'm such of the Van Halen school, and I'm I and and I carry that flag till the till the till I die. Um, he changed the world. What he did is most incredible stuff in the world. But there were moments where I would almost say I liked Vi better than Edward, mm -hmm. you, you, you know? Uh, but then there's moments where I'm like, what the fuck is it was, is Steve playing? Like sometimes it's so far out of whack. I can't put my head around it. You know what I mean? But, uh, but Vi is an incredible hybrid of, of, of musician and entertainment. Yeah. And he was, I think if I'm, if I had the information correct, the youngest guitar player, I think 19 years old for Frank Zappa. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just, he, he has such, and you know what I love? More recently, did you ever hear of a band called uh, The Two Cellos? Yeah, yeah, Steve loves them. I was just going to say, he's in a video, they do a song with them, and in that, uh, Highway to Hell. Yeah, yeah, said, yeah. That's how I found out about it. I was watching something on Steve Vai, and he was in that video. I said, these guys are awesome. I ended up seeing them three times just through yeah watching steve Vai. yeah it's it's great the great combination of the cellos with the metal and yeah they're another ones who are great entertainers no i want to bring up since we're on the subject i want to bring one more i think it's a great hybrid because i think ronnie james Dio is was an awesome singer but he also knew the importance of putting on a great stage show with the dragons and all the the crystal balls he just loved the whole fantasy who was that ronnie james Dio. Oh, geez. I mean, he doesn't even count. That's legendary yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, That's, yeah. He was an island, too, on himself. He And confident and knew uh, he knew what he was doing. That's all he, you know. I, again, I was never a super big fan of all that kind of Dungeons and dragons -y stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, fuck, he was cool. He was the leader of it, and, and he started it, and he created it, and, it, and he was cool. And to know what he was before that. Mm-hmm. You know, you see all this picture. What was he? A band called the Elves or something like that, or yeah, Elf, or what? And uh, and how he evolved that with his vision was incredible to me. You know, and what a voice! That's also that's also not just talent. That's a gift. The voice. Yes. What's well, funny? I just, they just came out with the first authorized documentary. It was authorized by Wendy and the Estate, and they were talking about that. Like the reason he quit Rainbow is because they were doing these more obscure songs, and then they were only popular over in England. And then he, Richie Blackmore always wanted to hit. So then he wrote Street of Dreams and Ronnie's like, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm not, I can't sing this stuff. And then that's when, <laughs> that's when Black Sabbath picked him up. But yeah, yeah. it's just, but it's, yeah, he's like you said, he's another one that's way, way up in the spectrum. And it's like, but an awesome voice, but he also knew the importance of putting on a great stage show. So there's, there's so many we could talk about. But what you, so, so I'm sorry, because now that you say him, I have to say Go ahead. Bruce Dickinson. Yes. <laughs> I, you know what's funny? I love the Paul Daniers. I loved Running Free and all that stuff. Prowler, Phantom of the Opera. But yeah, when the first, when um, Number of the Beast came out, I said, oh my God, this is 
great. And then Peace of Mind was one of my all-time favorite metal albums for the longest time. It's just I love that uh, when I love that era of Maiden, which yeah, I knew yeah. he left for a while and now he's back. But it's yeah, he's another great one. Like the, yeah. the Live After Death is one of my favorite VHS tapes that I had. <laughs> One of the most important interviews of my entire life was watching Bruce Dickinson and Bruce said, they were talking about him being this front man. And he said, I played to the last person in the backseat of the arena, not the person in the front row. And that stuck with me. That, that, that's, that's a lesson you need to know if you're going to be in this business. Yes. It's funny because I saw him, what's his solo? Tattoo Millionaire, I think it's called. <laughs> yeah. I saw him on that tour. He played, I don't know if you've ever played Toe's Place in New Haven. I know it. I do know yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So he, I saw him there and it was the first time in the small club. And then he, I was walking to my car and I walked past this little small guy and I didn't realize if I walked right by him it was Bruce. I had a chance to talk to him for a little bit. Such a cool guy. But it's funny you say small guy because he's 10 foot tall on the stage. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. why I almost didn't recognize him because I said, oh, <laughs> I didn't realize he was so short, but he, I, he had he had a chance to talk to him for a good five minutes or so. He seemed like he was a little overwhelmed because he's probably more used to the arenas and everything. Yeah, and yeah. People like, believe it or not, even with that music, people were trying to mosh and stage dive to it. And I think he was sure. like, okay, okay. Right, but, right. He, he, he's definitely into it. That's why I love, let me get your opinion on this. Um, I know everybody loves playing in front of millions of people at festivals, but what do you prefer playing small intimate settings or more of the uh, stadiums? You know, that's like, ask me, what do I prefer pizza or Mexican? Uh, I, I, you love them both. Uh, while Brett was out with the poison this summer, I went back and went back to my roots. I hadn't done this in a long, long time. And I just played acoustic shows in, in small bars. And there were nights I walked away and go, man, I just wish I could do this the rest of my life. I I'm enjoying this and, and the intimacy and the remembering, remembering what it felt like wondering what it would be like to get out of those places. Mm -hmm. But now I know what it's like to get out of those places. So it's not terrible anymore. Now it's great. You, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. and, I, and I love playing the for the smaller crowds, but what are you going to fucking do? You play in front of 50,000 people. No one's going to tell you that's not fucking cool. Oh, yeah. you, know, you, you know, one's going to tell you that's not cool. What I will tell you is that it's harder and scarier to play in front of uh, 20 people than it is 20,000. Mm -hmm. No, you know? I definitely can understand that. I never yeah. play in front of 20,000 people, but sometimes when I'm doing comedy with a bigger crowd, sometimes it's easier than when you have like, like you, you said, four eyes watching you. you yeah. Four people watching it and you feel like you can feel their every move when you, we, when there's a, when there's two little people and you can take note of everyone around you, that becomes a little more scary because you feel like you have to directly speak to each one of them. But when you got crowds of 10, 20, 30,000 people, they become a symbionts of their own and they're they're like a hive unit and you feel that energy and it's a different game. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever have you played with autograph recently? I've not played with them, but I've seen them recently. Okay. The reason I'm asking because I had uh Jimmy Bell on the show. He's the new guitar player. Well he's been the guitar player for a little while, but um he we we were talking about all the same things because he's toured with a lot of the same musicians and you mentioned slaughter. He said that people would be so surprised of how great of a guitar player he actually is oh blando or mark mark mark's incredible player right that's what you're saying yeah yeah but you sacrifice that at some point you know it, it, interestingly enough in my career i started off solely a guitar player 
Mm-hmm. And I got my first record deal with my band called Some Odd Reason uh, in the late 90s. <clears throat> and we were really successful to a certain level. Uh, we were, we were, I, I can say with 100% certainty, we were on the fringe of a real break, real breaking it. Uh, it was right in that Matchbox 20 Goo Goo Dolls era and, and all the stars were lined and we were touring and playing and I was a guitar player. So there's this whole fan base from that era that knows me as a guitar player. Mm-hmm. And then when that fell apart, I started Evic. And as Evic, I became the singer. And then there's 10 years of people that see me as a singer. Mm-hmm. That have no idea that I'm this, this accomplished guitar player. And then I joined Brett's band as a guitar player going back to the 80s stuff and really fucking shredding and playing all that stuff. And all these people that have only known me as a singer see that. Because when I first joined Brett's band, they're like, what do you mean you're going to play guitar? You're a singer, <laughs> you know? And and so my point of that is, uh, and then the Brett people go back and discover my band and find out I'm a singer. Uh, it's funny what people don't take into consideration. Don Dockin is incredible guitar player. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, uh, Mark's an incredible guitar player. All of us, I don't think any of us start wanting to be a singer. There's something about a singer that seems out of reach. Like when you're a kid, when you're 12, 13 years old, and you want to be a rock star, the singer almost seems like he's from outer space. Like it's un, unachievable. You don't hear a lot about taking vocal lessons or you don't hear about your buddy across the street plays guitar. You only sing if you're in the band. Mm-hmm. You can play guitar and not be in a band. Does that make sense? No, it does. You know, if you sing, you're already in a band, you know. So so a lot of guitar players like myself become frustrated with trying to find a singer. So you become the singer. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that's what Mark did. I'm sure it's what Mark did. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and, uh, and But Mark's incredibly talented dude, and so is Dana. I mean they're 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 a great bunch of guys yeah and that's exactly what he said too he said the same thing and it's funny because speaking of singing what did eddie trunk say to you the first time he saw you singing <laughs> not the first time okay that's the first time yeah uh, yeah uh it's funny there's been a few moments in the last few years uh i was doing a benefit um i i, I was doing a benefit with me and eric brittingham from um Cinderella, we had a side band and Eddie was the host of this benefit. And uh we did some covers, we did some Skid Row songs, some ACDC songs, some Van Halen, some poison and stuff like that. And uh he walked up and he's like, Oh man, it, it, it wasn't that he said I had this a great voice, it was that he said, Man, you're such a great front man. Mm-hmm. And I I laughed. I what a great compliment because Eddie tells you how it is. Oh, yeah, exactly. He tells you the truth. It was a great compliment, and I was honored. Like I wanted to go tell the whole world. Eddie said this, but <laughs> but also in my brain, I went, well, if I wasn't a great front man, something went wrong because I spent fucking twenty years, ten feet from the greatest front man of the world. If I didn't take something from that, then I'm a fucking idiot. It, it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was great. But then a couple of weeks ago, uh, or maybe a couple of months ago, we were doing a show that Eddie was at, and Brett's plane had to get diverted. And uh, it was a private party and the private party, 
decided that the music must go on. So I had to I had to sing the first hour. I had to front the band instead of Brett. And Eddie was there. And that was the night that Eddie went on the air the next morning and talked about seeing it and talking about how strong my voice was and how great it was and everything like that, which was very it means a lot to me because like I said, Eddie doesn't need any friends and he doesn't need to kiss anyone's ass. And uh, it, he, he's been very kind and supportive of me. Eddie, Eddie's a, a wonderful human being and a wonderful friend, but it's neat to hear him say those things. Yeah. Well, no, I, I only met him once and I, I listened to a lot of his shows, listened to his interviews. And like you said, I know he's very honest. If even he goes, yeah. you know, I've been, I've known him for years, but I just really don't like this or he'll, he'll tell you exactly how he feels. He never, uh, sugarcoats it for the even yeah, if he's never. president for years and I, I prefer that too like if somebody was coming to me and say oh you know i hate yes people yeah, yeah. so because then when they actually do say something you're like is, is he bullshitting me again i don't really know so yeah the fact they keep from him definitely and i i haven't seen you in country i'm hoping you're going to be coming around the area sometime soon in connecticut i don't know if, it, if you're gonna uh, be in december i'm doing an acoustic show in connecticut oh where's it gonna be me and chad from fester pussycat that's forgets drummer yeah, uh, he'll be playing percussion with me, and um, I, if you give me a second, I can look at where it's at. Yeah, go ahead. And put my glasses on for everyone <laughs> to see that that's that's where I'm at in my life right now. Well, I have to. I've been using these readers for the last year and a half myself. So, <laughs> give me one second. Yeah, no problem. Um, come on. It is um, December 16th. I'm at Four Seasons by the Lake at Stafford Springs, Connecticut. All right. Yeah, that's not too far from here. And then Saturday, December 17th, I'm at Rascals in Worcester, Massachusetts. All right. And that's, like, no, that's only about an hour, I mean, like an hour and 10 minutes away. So, so we'll you will definitely see me one of those shows. Yeah, I definitely want to it up. <laughs> well, we talked about this before, the difference between small shows and big shows. I want to talk about the first time Brett asked you to play with him. It was a small radio show. Jesus Christ, man. It still haunts <laughs> me to this day. Version, <laughs> I love it. Version, my version is different. We didn't rehearse, man. I know you've heard the story. We didn't rehearse. And uh, it was 15,000 people. Small radio, small radio show. Small radio show to me is... 100 people in a parking lot or, or or whatever. It was just different. And you know what? Fuck me for not answer, asking the right questions, to be honest with you. I was so excited. I just said yes. And where do you want me to be? You mm -hmm. know, so. So, uh, yeah, that was that that was crazy, man. And, and we weren't good. The best part of that moment, though, was the best part of that experience was a couple of days later when Brett called and he said, how do you think that went? And I said, oh, it was fucking terrible. And he said, well, good. He goes, the problem would have been if you thought it was good. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and then we were right on the same page. And then it went on from there. <laughs> what a weird day, man. You bring that up. And I just remember just for the first time in my life, walking out onto a stage like that. And just an hour before that, I thought I was going to just be in some radio station. You know, That's it was crazy. funny. Well, yeah. I'm glad that he's such a great guy that he said, all right, Let's let's give it another try. Let's give you another chance. Because were you opening up for him at the time? Your Not band opening that, up? No, but we had for two years okay. before that. We'd been his opening band a lot of times, which is why he knew. Okay. He'd seen what we really could do. Yeah. You know, and he kind of understood too. He's like, maybe I didn't prep you. We didn't rehearse. He kind of ate half the fault too. You know what I mean? And yeah. then you know, and then he said, he goes, I got another gig in two weeks. Uh, 
he goes, this time, let me be clear. It's 33,000 people sold out, open for Leonard Skinner Memorial Day weekend. He, he laid the specifics down on me. And then he said, let's try it one more time. You just come down and be yourself. Yeah. And I just did my thing that day. And he high-fived me at the end of nothing but a good time. And here we are 20 years mm -hmm. later. The rest <laughs> is history. Yeah. I want to talk about how Dana Strum helped you when you first joined Brett Michaels' band. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dana, there's nobody smarter than Dana in the rock and roll business. Uh, and I was hired as just to be Brett's guitar player, but then some things happened and a couple of crew member changes happened and, um, and somebody left the tour on the spot, leaving the position of tour manager completely wide open. And if you know, Dana takes care of all these things for Vince and is in the band. Mm -hmm. And at the time he was basically the only dude that did that. And Dana didn't know me from Adam. And I called him and I said, Dana, uh, the tour managers left the tour. And for some reason, I'm the guy now. I got to go do all these things. How do I keep Brett happy? What can I do? And Dana just spent hours, days taking my phone calls. Whatever I asked, he would answer. He would help me. He would explain to me what, how to do it and just uh, led me on the path, man. He He helped me figure out how to do it. Yeah. yeah it's good it's good to have friends like that they've already been through it and they can say all right this this is yeah. what to do it so that probably ease some of the pressure for you or just let you calm down it's like all right i got this yeah so, like you said 20 years later you're still kicking ass so we'll see I, well, feel, I hope i hope i am some days it doesn't feel like it sometimes it's funny sometimes 20 years feels like a day and sometimes 20 years feel like 100 you know the yeah. road and the mu music life is an interesting thing it, it 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 is a strange hybrid. It keeps you young and makes you old at the same time, man. It beats you up and keeps you enthusiastic. It is it is a nonstop yin and yang on every level, mentally, physically, emotionally. You know, music business is a great um, what do you call it? A great um, balancer, I guess. It balances you out. It keeps keeps you grounded, but but also put your head in this it's it, it's 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 a crazy ride oh, yeah i can't imagine so how many dates do you do per year now i mean this is we're talking like post-covid now so since you're back i'm guessing things are pretty much back to normal all over the place yeah we're we're back to three to three nights a week almost every night all the way up to thanksgiving wow. um so what do you say i don't i i, I mean we've done 250 dates a year uh this year may end up with about a hundred or so, but next year is going to be big. We're out because there's no poison tour next year. Uh, so yeah, the poison tour certainly got in the way of us, you know, yeah. but it also helped. I mean, uh, you know, I, I crack up because I, you know, uh, you know, I, I have to wonder how Nikki six feels. Cause in the opening of Nikki's new book, he talks about how he didn't even want poison to be on that tour. It's like in the first paragraph of his new book and you read the headlines, man, they, yeah. they won the tour. They were, yeah. they were the talk of it every night, every single night they were. And, uh, you know, so that was good for poison because everyone loves poison. You know, they weren't the fans critic or the, the, they weren't the critics favorite in the early days, but as time went on, just longevity and the fact that they're still there, all four original members, uh, gave them some cred. Uh, but this year they went out and, um, they solidified, 
themselves on a whole different level. And the interesting yeah. thing is they didn't do anything different. They didn't even rehearse. Those guys rehearsed for like two days. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, even Brett made the comedy because what are we doing so different? Yeah. And I, you know, it, it's just, it's like fine wine, man. The, they, they've aged better than everyone else. Yes, I definitely agree with that. I didn't see that tour. I've seen, again, clips of it. And I've seen, you know, Motley Crue, I've seen Poison, I've seen Joan Jett. Poison, to me, the clips I saw were definitely the best. They sounded great. They were having fun on stage. The audience was into it. And no tracks, that real live music. Yes. Yep. You know? and somebody told me, too, which I got, I got mad. They were defending Vince Neil. I don't know how true this is. They were saying that Vince Neil was using a teleprompter on stage. So I what? Said, no, so I know. No, I'm just saying that like uh, people, no, I agree with you on that for one, but I also like think that like people like Paul McCartney, who was almost eight years old, didn't need that. But it's just, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I think sure. McCartney has a teleprompter, does he not? If he does, I didn't see him using it, but. You know, Axel's yeah. been using a teleprompter from back on the Usual Illusion tour. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, Steven Tyler's been using a teleprompters from um, yeah. uh Whatever record had that "What It Takes" song. There you go, my old girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say about that. Uh, Vince using a teleprompter and still didn't sing afterwards. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, Vince is my friend, and I'm pro Vince. Nikki's a douche, and, and if you, if I found out the day that he choked and died, I wouldn't give a fuck. I got to be honest with you. But Vince is my friend, and I love the guy. Yeah, and um, and uh. But it's weird that they basically got reviews from sucking and that they're like the worst karaoke band in the world because they were playing their own tracks and still got reviewed for sucking. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. it's, it's, uh, I can't understand why they're going back out because I can't find a single good review about the band. Not I just, no, I not haven't seen any. Whole thing. Everything. They suck. They suck. They suck. They suck. And, and, Somehow they're going back out. I don't No fan enjoyed it. Every fan I walk, I have not met one person that walked away thinking Motley Crue was, you know, there's a million of the fans that were bad that they mad that they came back in the first place because they spent all this money to see them what they thought was going to be the last time. Oh yeah. So there's that bunch of people that are mad. And now there's this whole bunch of people that thought it was the worst thing they'd ever seen. So how are they going to go back out? I don't, something, something's fucked up about it, man. That's all I know. I, I, keep, I keep making the joke that Nikki's the one that brought on COVID his <laughs> little deal, his deal with the devil. And he tore up his little contract that he was never going to play together. And that set forth the end of the world. If you ask me, that's funny. Well, I know I, they, they each had contracts saying they could never play together. This and that. And I think what happened was that movie, the dirt came out and it was such a big hit that somebody said, Hey, you should go on tour. I mean, I'm yeah, guessing yeah. that's probably what happened. But the funny thing about that tour, I just want to bring this up, was I heard an interview where I guess they originally asked Dave Lee Roth to be a part of it. And he said, I'm not going to be opening up for somebody, that, for people that I influenced. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. Why so would they, yeah, that, that wouldn't have fit anyway, but, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, look, it's only, the most important thing is that Brett and the guys are having a great time playing and the people love them. So, yeah, and with the, all the other drama, with the other band, who really cares? Right. Yeah. Now I will say Def Leppard was great every night. Okay. That I, I didn't see really too many too many clips. I didn't really I saw like one or two clips from Joan. She didn't sound too bad either. The no, she was great, saw. but but she was also playing at four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, but Def Leppard is just uh, the one flaw Leopard made was they'd open the set with like three or four of the brand new songs, mm -hmm. and and it would 
I think the crowd was taken aback by that a little bit because this tour was about nostalgia. It was about reliving that that those days. You know what I mean? But yeah. no one really said anything. No one said anything bad about Def Leppard. It was just everyone just the energy Poison brought. It it won. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I I saw them. I want to say two thousand five, two thousand six, and they were excellent concert. And I'm glad to hear that they're still doing well. How long? How much longer is that tour going on for? The stadium tour is it? Or- no, no one knows. Live Nation oh. will take it till till the last dollars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's going international now. They're taking it into the other countries. Ah, uh, so while their poisons doing their thing, do you take Evic out? I know you do some acoustic shows, but do you go out with the band and do some tours on your own? Or do some shows in your- my my guys have settled into the real world. You know what I mean? I can't okay. I can't take them out on the road. We do local shows, but we do a couple local shows a year, and uh, it becomes huge events. Come become sellout shows, and and it, it feels good. So we just keep it at that instead yeah. of getting you know if we went back to the grind and started playing three or four nights a week, eventually it would be just like every other local band, and you know twenty five thirty people show up. We we make what we do a special event. Yeah, I think that's better. It's like, you know, have one huge show instead of like 15 yeah. to 20 smaller shows. So yeah. that, 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 good marketing. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about your writing process. And so what is your writing process? Do you write the lyrics first? Like, say, I guess for your band, write the lyrics first, then the music, or do you write the music and then come up with some lyrics? It's all different. I don't, I don't have, a spe- excuse me for yawning. I don't have a specific process at all. Um, I drive a lot. And I and and um, sometimes a lyric will come to mind. Um, and some days I wake up and I go, oh, I want to write a cool guitar riff there. It's no rhyme or reason what happens. Yeah. Nine times out of 10, the songs that end up being heard from people, though, uh, heard by people are the ones that I start lyrically. Okay. Because because to me, I'm still all the cool guitar in the world doesn't matter if you don't have a good story in your song. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're writing with Brett. Do you show Brett a guitar lick and say, you know, like, do you work, do you come collaborate a lot? Most everything with Brett starts with a drum beat. Okay. Brett will think of a song title and then he'll actually beatbox a beat. And like, I have, I I actually have demos. I wish I could play uh, of a song that he sang into the microphone, every single part. He did the drums, the bass, the guitar and then the vocal to get this demo himself uh out of his head you know um but most of the time it starts with a beat and he'll say i want to do something like this mm-hmm. or let's think of something feels in the vein of this and uh and then we just it, it's a very very chaotic process working in brett's head he goes Hundred miles an hour, and you just gotta hope you can fucking follow it. <laughs> you basically, in your studio at Brett, you're just catching what's falling and seeing if you can put it together and give him what he's hearing in his head. Now, do you guys all live around the same area? And the reason I'm asking this is because there's a Connecticut band, Fate's Warning. I'm not sure if you ever heard of them or know who yeah, they are. Fate's Warning are. All right, so that, I was watching an interview with them, and they were saying that they all live all over the place. So what they'll do is Jim Patheos will write something, give it to Ray. Ray will also go back with Jim and then they'll give it to the bass player. So they really never, ever collaborate together because they're all in different states. Do you have a similar situation or are you all in the no, same area? I'm on the East Coast and Brett's on the West Coast. Okay. And, uh, 
and we just get together. He'll have a song idea and he'll be like, you know, he has his own planning, do whatever the fuck he wants. So literally, literally, if he has an idea in the morning, he can be here in a few hours on the East Coast, you know, and and we work in the studio or we work in his studio or we work on the bus, uh, just just wherever. Yeah, that's great. Some like Bruce Dickinson, he flies the plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brett's not that. a pilot, and yeah. I don't know if I'd fly a plane. Brett was fly piloting, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's funny. So, how often do you when when the tours are over and you both both have some downtime? How often do, does the band get together? Uh the band not a lot, but me and him are always together. We're always working on, if it's not music, we're working on something else. I was with him uh, last week. We were uh, up in New York because he was filming Impractical Jokers. He's going to be on that oh. show. And I went with him and hung out. Uh, we're together a lot. Oh, very cool. All right. So besides Kiss, we know that you love Kiss growing up. Who are some of your biggest influences growing up? And who are some of your current favorites? Um, well, there's, there's Kiss, Van Halen. Bon Jovi, Poison, and Warren. Those are my yeah. And Quiet Riot. I, I gotta say Quiet Riot. And I know you know I, I loved Quiet Riot, and I always forget to leave those guys out. But I leave and Ozzy was a big influence. But but the big the influence of my music is is Kiss, Van Halen, Poison, Bon Jovi, and Warren. But that's a good list. But that's of hair metal stuff. Yeah. Um, I am a Brian Adams fanatic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a Mellencamp fanatic. Yeah, I like I like those pop storyteller songs, which is yeah. why I like Bon Jovi so much. Bon Jovi was like Mellencamp and Springsteen and uh, and Brian Adams with cooler guitars. It, it, you know, so I like all that stuff. What do I like now? Like you mean modern bands? Yeah, I'm just curious about like, who who do you listen to now? Some not not going back to the bands that we grew up with listening to, but some of the yeah, some of the newer bands. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I say newer bands, and they're older. <laughs> you know, you know. Uh, I was when Bush came out. I was a giant Bush fan, but that stuff's 25 years old now. Mm-hmm. You know? I loved Lit. I love Butch Walker. Um, you know, I love all the country stuff. I mean, I'm from Virginia, so I've always been rooted in in the country music stuff. Um, I don't know. I yeah, I, I'm not a big guy anymore on bands. I just like songs. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I whatever whoever has a good song. Um, I like I like pop hooks. I like cherry pie. I like nothing but a good time. Yes. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so so I, you know. I love Ed Shearing. I think that guy's insane. Great. You know, um, but I, it would probably bother you to hear, but I got to say, I don't go looking for anything new. No. Well, it's funny you said that. Cause I'm very similar. People always say it to me like, you don't know how much you're missing out. And I'm like, I love the old stuff. And there was a, a certain point where I just said, I I'm sure there's some great bands that I'm missing out on, but I just, there was a point where I just said, everything sounds the same. I mean, this maybe it's more of the popular stuff. People that are more underground, maybe there's different, but it's just, yeah, I, I, in the same way, I really don't go searching for newer bands. I like what I like and I have, I'm all over the place. I can go from King Diamond to the Carpenters to Poison in a matter of three songs. Yeah. Mozart after that. I mean, so I have very, very eclectic taste, but 
for new, I'm exactly the same. So yeah, I it's not, you get it's it. not something that can hurt me because I have the same mentality as you. All right, there you go. <laughs> but I want to talk about you had the honor of playing for the troops. What was that like? Uh, it was it was great. Uh, my 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 father was military. There's this little part of me that always kind of felt like I was a idiot for not serving my country, and uh, I think Brett feels a little bit that way too. And we were able to go to Iraq and play. We played in Saddam's palace after it had been overthrown. Played in, we played in his opera house with the American flag flying behind us. It was powerful. Wow. Um, and, and we still meet these troops today, and they go, "Oh, we saw you in Iraq," and that was the greatest thing in the world. Um, to know that we made their day a little bit better, is probably the greatest reward I've ever had in the entire, in my entire music business. And didn't you go into areas that were yeah. the most popular areas to go into? Brett, Brett said, if we're going to go, we're going to go. And we played, we played some of these places that um, there were no lights. We're playing in the dark. And I remember we were playing, we got like through a song and a half and all of a sudden the air raid sirens went off and we had to all run into bunkers, turn the lights down and hide. Uh, it, it was surreal experience, but I never, there was never a frightening moment. There was one moment I have this picture where we're in a bunker and we're getting attacked and I'm sitting there with my guitar. I look at this picture sometimes I got my eyes closed. Uh, and I'm waiting, I'm, I'm waiting to die, man. I, I, in my brain, I've decided that this is it. This is going to happen because it's an air raid and they put us down there. So you think that's happening and I'm at peace with it for some reason. Uh, but the one thing I keep thinking about is we took a, a pro photographer from that did some work from Rolling Stone with us. And uh, we're all in this bunker taking cover, thinking we're going to die. And he's getting the shot. He's taking the photos and we're thinking, and I just thought, I mean, that's the passion of a photographer. They'll die for that, yeah. that, that shot. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? That, that was interesting. Yeah. Well, it must have been really tough for you with your crippling fear from the past with all with the bombs. So interestingly enough, my fear is not of conventional war. The fear is nuclear annihilation. Uh, okay. The idea that that bomb drops and everything just melts. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Vaporization. You, you know what I mean? For some reason, I don't see the, the standard warfare isn't, don't get me wrong, it's horrifying, mm -hmm. but it's it's not what the scars are for me. Yeah. Okay. No, that's definitely understandable because um, maybe not as bad, but I'm afraid of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not as crippling, but yeah, I do have a fear of that and I don't, don't want that to happen. So, so how many countries have you toured? I, I don't have the answer to that. Okay, I know so you've been this. all over the world then. I know this. I've been all over the world. And I haven't been to fucking Hawaii. <laughs> well, I think you know what? You gotta next time Brett's free, he's like, Brett, come on, let's take your plane. Let's go to Hawaii for the weekend. Come on. Yeah, I don't know why I've never ended up there, but I, I've been all over. I mean, Australia and and uh I start naming places and I'll name cities instead of countries and countries instead of yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so I don't I'm not gonna make myself look stupid, but I've I've been all over. Yeah. What's funny is my brother was a fighter pilot and I was an airline pilot. He was a fighter pilot in the Navy. And he said one of the nicest countries he's ever visited was uh, Australia. He loved that place. He said he would love to have lived there. He just I, loved that area. I loved it. It was, yeah. you know, but at the same time, that flight was so long. I often tell Brett that he'll have to get another guitar player if he ever goes back there. The flight was <laughs> unbearable to Australia, but, uh, but once you're there, it's, it's, uh, it's, 
it's wonderful. It's, yeah. it's Australia is awesome without a doubt. So my my longest flight was to uh, I went to Romania on a Dracula oh, yeah. tour, Transylvania. I loved it because I oh, love yeah. I love history and I love horror movies. So it was a perfect blend of sure, sure. Taylor and Dracula, and it was just such a great place. And over there, there's a lot of gypsies. I mean, it's a very poor country, but the people were so nice. I'll give you an example because I had this money and I really had no idea what it was. I'm buying things and they're chasing me down the road. Sir, you gave me too much money. I said, imagine if this was America. Yeah. Uh, thank you, dumb tourist. Yeah. Okay, or Mexico. Yeah. That wasn't gonna happen. That ain't gonna happen in the United States or Mexico. Oh, keep running. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, I, I that was probably my all-time favorite vacation. I had such a fun time in that, and it was a, a guided tour. And just went to, we spent Halloween night in Dracula's castle. Did you really? Yep. I didn't know that was a thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's well, a, if you're into all that, happy Halloween. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. funny you say that because everybody's been doing the same things. They know this is like my favorite holiday, my favorite time of the year. Yeah, I, just, right I have many different interests, but I grew up watching all the old horror movies and things like that. I still love. I'll give you an example. Like, right, as I mentioned before, I'm 54. So my father used to wake my brothers and I up and say, come on. Phantasms on. It'd be three o'clock in the morning. We'd be sitting there watching. Oh my God, the tall man's gonna kill us! You know? <laughs> right. On. But yes, yeah, so I, I I love this time of year. Cool. All right. So I want to talk about uh, what we talked. Um, and I mentioned in the intro, Potomac Records. Uh jeez, that's a that that's a part of my past now. Okay. But but the concept was important to me when I started it. Um, I was so into, I remember the day MP3 came out I, and I, I am a technological guy. I fear getting older. Cause I feel, I, I fear like every time a new phone comes out, it takes me longer to learn how to use it. Right. And stuff. And I don't want to be that guy. I always, <laughs> youth to me is technology, right. You know what I'm oh, saying? Yeah. And, uh, and so I jumped on the bandwagon and I started Potomac Records with the concept that it was going to be one of, if not the very first, all digital record labels. We weren't going to make any CDs and we weren't going to, we, we were going to distribute music. Uh, music was already being distributed digitally, but we were going to be creative with everything and not print vinyl CDs or anything. Um, and, and then I got so busy with Brett's band that I, uh, pass it off to our former drummer, Brett Michaels' man, Mike Bailey. And Mike took it and ran with it for a few years. And I was kind of a consultant, so to speak, or I kept my nose in it a little bit, but eventually it became all his. But I just, I just, uh, I just wanted to help distribute music for people. I wanted, yeah. that's all it was, just like anything, I, you know, whether it's Dr. Dre or whoever starts a record label. I, I, found some success in, in my own music business and found that I pulled a little more weight than other people locally. And I wanted to try to put my hand down and help some people up. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that with uh, the younger generation, my friend's daughter, she's 16 years old. She's like, give me your phone. I'll show you how to just, it's like, Oh, what else does my phone do? There's so yeah, right. She shows me. I said, Oh, really? I didn't know it did. This. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I just, I, the last text. <laughs> The last couple updates, my kids show me what to do, and I'm like, yeah, I remember showing them what to do, and it's changed now. <coughs> and right. that, I don't want that, that. That's frightening to me, but I guess it'll come, you know. Oh, yeah, 
Definitely. No, it seems like you're doing all right. I think I think you're, <laughs> I think you're doing well. <laughs> well, in the intro, I mentioned all the different things you've done. So right now, I want to talk about you, P. Evick, the author. So yes, the book is called The Moments That Make Us. Let's talk about that and how that came about. Uh, interestingly enough, I just finished my second book. Congratulations. Uh, me and uh, another guy are writing it, Steve. And uh, and uh, it's a completely different book. It's funny because when you mentioned earlier about authors getting typecast, about writing the same thing, uh, I hope that I'm able to do something a little bit different with this book um, than the other book. But um, uh, Moments That Make Us was actually written, started was started to be written about, I I had a, I went through a divorce and everybody kept, all I could think about was my fucking kids, man. Um, because I was on the tour. I had to continue to tour. It was, it was my career. It wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, Hey, come home and get a real job. This was, it was a real job. It was a legit. I was making more money doing that than anything I could have come home to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I just kept thinking about my fucking kids, man. And everyone would say kids are resilient. Kids are resilient. And I didn't want to hear that. I just didn't. I just want. I, and I kept thinking about everybody I know in my life, even me who comes from not not a divorced family. Both my parents had families before me, but my parents were married till they died in my in my life. But I knew my dad's children had such horrible stories from the divorce um and everyone i knew was broken from divorce there was nothing you could convince me that my kids were going to be all right and uh um so i originally set out to write a book called kids are resilient but what about the adults we become because it was those that that was and the the publisher said boy that title's too long <laughs> but uh but the the concept was that Everybody watches their kids and they go, oh, this seems like they're doing fine. But you don't know what you don't you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those scars, <clears throat> a lot of those scars don't come out until you're married yourself. Mm-hmm. Or you're an adult in life and you realize what happened. And so this just consumed me. And I sat down to write a book to inspire people to save their marriages is what it started as. Mm-hmm. And I started it by telling stories about me as a kid. I don't know what happened, to be honest with you, where it swayed. But eventually, as I was turning in the chapters to the publisher, they came to me and they said, this isn't about divorce. This is about life in general. This is about it's way bigger than what you think it is. The 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 stories you're telling aren't just about making sure your kids are okay. And so we changed the title to The Moments That Make Us, and my focus shifted <coughs> to defining moments in my life that stopped me on a dime. And if I was going this way, I went that way. Mm-hmm. And the point of it wasn't for everyone to read my stories the point was that maybe it would inspire other people to do that same soul searching. A lot of people that don't know why they ended up this way or why they ended up that way. And I just thought a lot of people don't really retrace what made them who they are. Mm-hmm. And so I just wrote, of course, these stories that seemed oddball. And, a, and the point was that you find yourself in the strangest moments 
that you sometimes don't even remember happened. But if you start doing, you know, regressing on yourself and figuring out, you go, oh, that one moment, you know, there. I tell the story in my book about being in the mall with my mother. And my mom used to always buy me popcorn and we walked through the mall. And this was in elementary school. Mm-hmm. And then I was in the middle school. Uh, everything changes where I came from. Everything changed in middle school. Like the second year in middle school, it, you were supposed to be cooler and grown up and hipper. And there were, there were middle school dances and there was, you know, a lot of things that I think a lot of people think about that happened in high school, happened in middle school. Anyway, I, uh, <clears throat> we went to the mall one day once I started sixth grade and my mom bought me this popcorn and I was walking with my mom and I was just, just happy little kid. And I saw some kid, new kid from the middle school and the kid didn't do anything, but my brain all of a sudden went, Oh man, I don't want him to see me with this popcorn. I'm, I'm supposed to be cool now. You, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. and in that, in that second, in one brief second, a piece of my innocence was stripped. It, it, you know what I mean? But it led me on a path that day I became someone else. Mm-hmm. And that those moments, every one of us are filled with those moments, every single yeah. one of us. And I wanted to inspire people to trace those moments and maybe learn who they are. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did it take you to write this book? Uh, felt like 90 years. Because <laughs> uh, I was so busy with Brett's band and I was still dealing with the divorce and changing my whole life around. I wrote the entire book on airplanes. Wow. That was difficult. I can't imagine doing that. Well, airplanes were the only place that I found peace because I didn't have the internet. My phone wasn't ringing. It was, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I would write a chapter every time I got on a plane, but half the chapters I threw out and then I'd also have to be inspired. So I had to not be exhausted or tired. Mm -hmm. So, but so I, it took me maybe three years to write the book, but every single chapter was written on an airplane. Now I'm guessing it was, was it written on a laptop? I can't imagine writing on longhand on an airplane. That, that would be really difficult. No, I can't even read my own name when I write it. Like my my manuscript, my handwriting is a disaster. No, I, I typed it all. Sometimes I I would type chapters on notes on my phone, you know, the note app on yeah. your iPhone. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, I, I, it took me about three years to make it. So did you ever sometimes, well, I mean, your schedule's all over the place too. Did you ever get like inspired at three o'clock in the morning and said, all right, I got to write this down now before I forget. So I got to tell you about that. And this happened to me just the other day. I, um, I have this thing where, how do I say it? That happens a lot. I'll wake up in the middle of the night. And I'll go, fuck man, I got the greatest idea in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I used to get up and do it and nine times out of ten i it turned out to be a terrible useless idea so now my theory is if i wake up in the middle of the night and feel that way if i remember it in the morning then it was a really good idea ah. so i don't do that anymore i'll lay i'll lay in bed and think about it all but i will not get up and 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 act on it because that's the test. If I still think it's a good idea in the morning, then it was a good idea. Yeah. Now, is this second book a work of nonfiction as well? Yeah. Yeah. But this one is about the music business. It's about my journey. Ah. It still starts. It still starts as me as a kid, uh, and goes up to me being in Brett's band. But you know, it's not a dirt 
thing for Motley Crue. I tell some wild stories and some fun, but I, I'm not into that. That's ridiculous. That, that the the dirt is the stupidest bunch of tales in the whole world. That uh, but it's a cheap shot that he, you know. And you even ask Vince, and Vince is like, I don't remember any of that. That stuff ain't true, you know. But uh, it, it's there's some debauchery in it, but there's also just my journey. Yeah, I love that. You know what gets me mad? I interviewed David Ellison from Megadeth. And I'm sure you know his story. He didn't want to talk I know about Dave. Megadeth. Dave's my friend. Yeah, he's a great guy. And I feel so bad for him because I even mentioned it. I went to, he didn't want to talk about Megadeth. I said, I really don't care about that. We talked about his movie and everything else he's done. But the fact that I mentioned to I said bands like Motley Crue had their whole careers off of stories that were way worse than what you he did. And they brag about it like it's a, a badge of honor. And this guy was doing something private, it was consensual, and he gets fired. It's just, yeah. that that got me pissed off. It's like- Well, Mustaine, I well, mean- Yeah, I already know about him too. Like, I don't know him personally, but I know people that do know him. Yeah. So you, you have to say a word about him. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I think, I think I even said like off the air, I said, David, I think you're better off and he agreed. <laughs> yeah, I'm pro Ellison, always have been. I love him. Yeah, I met him several times before I interviewed him, and he's always been a gracious, down-to-earth, nice guy. What you see is what you get. He's, yeah. There's no air about him, and obviously you're friends with him, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and I'm so happy that he's found success now after everything that happened. True, absolutely. So when do you expect the second book to come out? Uh, after the first of the year. I was hoping to have it out by Christmas, but uh, I'm having a hard time editing uh the, the manuscript's done and then I'm going through the man. I, this book, I didn't write it. I dictated my stories and then someone else wrote what I was saying and then gave me a manuscript. And then I'm going and fixing the misunderstanding, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we'll go through that process. And uh, I wanted to have it done by now, but some things have happened uh, that have kept me and Brett busier than we expected to be this time of the year. Yeah. Now, with the other book, with, with the editing, did you edit it yourself or do you have a beta reader that said, um, why don't you take this out? This, I, this doesn't sound good. I can't spell my kids' names. I didn't edit anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that pretty much answers that question. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. How many drafts do you normally write? Like, I know this one you're, you're dictating, but for the first book, how many drafts did you write before you said, All right, I'm happy with this? Each chapter had about three passes. Okay. That's funny because that's exactly what I do. I write, for me, I write one, first one was longhand, then I would type it out, then I would go through it again just to see all the errors that I had and then have somebody look it over and then I'd say, okay, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. And you got to quit. You got to, just like producing a song, you just have to stop. You have to go, this is it. (laughs) No, it's funny you said that because I was, at the time when the book came out, I was part of a uh, writing club. So there's a lot of different authors in there. And everybody was saying, oh, you know what, I, I'm not done yet, I'm not quite done. I said, you're never going to get it perfect. And I actually was teaching one of the classes, and my class was called Perfection is the Death of Good. You're yeah. never going to get it perfect. Just get it as happy, as, as good as you can get it, and get out and go on to the next day. Either you're just going to kill yourself saying, oh, my God, well, if I dot this T, wait, let me cross this eye one more time. It's like, no, it's good. Just yeah, move on. Yeah. I think a lot, of, unfortunately, with the people I'm thinking of right now, I think they were more afraid of actually releasing it and having people. There's a lot it. of people that use that as, as the reason why. The, yeah. But the real reason is they don't want rejection. Exactly. For me, I mean, all the things I've done, as I mentioned, like bands, 
stand-up comedy, there's always going to be people that love me and people that hate me. I don't really care. It's like, yeah. I love what I do and I, I'm very confident in what I do. And, you know, if you don't like it, well, then move on. Because a lot of yeah. people do like it, so let them get, get up front. So Very much. And you, wear, you have worn so many hats so far in this world. I want to talk about another thing you've done. It's called the Shining Soul Candle Company. Let's yes. talk about how that came into existence. Uh, that was, that again came, was a birth of much like the book through my divorce. Um, I, I was coming home to an empty house after nine years or nine months of being on the road through the season, through Rock of Love and all those TV shows. And uh, it was the first time in my life that I just didn't want to play the guitar. I've been playing guitar since I was five years old and I didn't even want to look at the thing. I loved it. I wasn't angry at it. I just was burnt, you know, never had a hobby in my life. Don't play sports. I like Star Wars movies and I like guitar and that's it. And, um, and I just didn't want to play the guitar and I was sitting alone at my house and I lit this candle and, uh, it was supposed to smell like a wood burning fireplace and it didn't. And I remember like three o'clock in the morning sitting there going, I wonder if I could do this. I wonder if I could make a better candle. And uh, so I went to the hobby store the next morning. I crack up because I don't think I showered for like three days. You come off the tour and you're, you know, my family's not at my house anyway. And I was just kind of sitting there and, uh, (laughs) and I went in there and there's, you know, you went to Michael's, the hobby store and it's like all these, you know, mothers buying their kids projects stuff for, you know, school projects and stuff. And, Here's this guy with my hair unwashed for three or four days and just trembling all the sheets. I think they were probably horrified. Like, what is what is this guy doing? And I, I remember going, uh, do you have candle making supplies? And uh and the woman just pointed me in a direction and I went home and became obsessed. And I, I love that. And and I it I it was greeted with the same, it was the first time I felt the passion for something the way I did about the guitar. Mm-hmm. all of a sudden I just wanted to know everything I was consumed by it. It was all I could think about. And I was just into it and it's into it. <clears throat> and then, and then I wanted to teach my kids some entrepreneurial skills, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they weren't going to go to college. Maybe they weren't whatever. <clears throat> so, so I started a website and then I just, just grew it from what, from there. There's a lot of stories <clears throat> about what happened, but it went from making candles in my kitchen to, we have three stores in three different states. Uh, we wow. have a manufacturing warehouse. Uh, we employ uh, probably 30-some people, maybe 20-some people. And uh, other than our own three stores, our products are sold in over 200 stores around the country. Wow. You know what I love about that story is because so many people, something comes out and I hear people say, oh, I could have done that or I could do this. Well, then why don't you do it? Just stop talking about it. I love the fact that you have an idea instead of just talking about it or thinking about it. You actually do it. You become obsessed with something. You find out everything about yeah, it. You make it the best. I know exactly. I'm I'm very similar. Like I told you, all the things I've wanted done. People say to me, "Why do you have to do so much? Why not? I I have many interests. Why not explore them? Why not have fun with what I'm doing?" And right, and, yeah. So tools are there for anyone to do anything right now. Oh my God, yeah. Just go on YouTube and you can find out how to do anything right anything. now. So why not do it, right? Well, how'd you come up with the name, the Shining Soul Company, which is spelled S O L? So soul is for sun, shining soul. Uh, I was in such a dark place in my life that I needed, I wanted, I wanted positivity. I wanted light. I wanted, um, I just wanted, even though I wasn't a super happy person, I wanted to create something just like writing a song that would make other people happy. I wanted it to be about brightness 
you know um my original record label that my band so my reason was signed to was called soul three records s-o-l-3 and so uh but i kept for months i kept trying to think of a name and nothing nothing like i i couldn't come up with anything it was making me fucking crazy to be honest with you and um one night i was in a hotel room in north dakota just sitting there in the dark and it hit me like someone gave it to me it was like playing it in my head like an alien implant like all of a sudden the name was just in my head shining soul and i called a few people asked them what they thought they thought it was good and to this day i don't know where it came from but it was a gift i love it yeah now you're you and your store have won several awards so let's talk about that i guess we won you know we, we've won best retail shop uh a handful of years in a row um congratulations yeah. They gave me a business of the year when wow. we first opened uh, at, from the city and the government. Um, and then uh, one year, the city of Manassas gave me the man of the year award for, um, which is weird, you know, spend all your life being a decadent rocker and all of a sudden you're on a front of a parade floating down being the man of the year, right? But they gave me that because of my contribution to the city uh, because of the because of the business and what I built the business and uh, bringing people to our town. So I, it's been, it's been a, it's been a super cool ride doing that and creating something. It's, it's a lot like writing a song. You make up a new candle or a new candle scent. It's, it's, it's much like writing a lyric. You got to come up with something familiar. Like you said, people like familiarity. It's come up with something familiar, but different at the same time. Yeah. And it, it's, it's you know, a lot like the music business in that way. Now, are you still a big part of it, but or do you have somebody that you sort of handed it over to and let them handle all the business? No, no, no. In fact, the reason I was late for this interview was I was over at the warehouse. Oh, I okay. Come, I had to come running over to the house to 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 do it. No, we're, we're hands-on. Uh, me and my partner are still hands-on very much. Oh, good. Love it. All right, so this is going to be a hard-hitting question. Hopefully, you can handle it. Why is soy wax better than paraffin? <laughs> I mean, that's an easy question. Uh, the soy stuff is 100% natural. Okay. All that. Uh, if you do enough research about paraffin, you find out that it's basically motor oil. Ah, uh-huh. so nothing but the best. That's yeah. why you win all these awards. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So the paraffin just has toxins in it and stuff, and and the soy is 100% natural stuff. I mean, there, there's process involved in in converting it from soybeans that the the you know the paraffin world we'll try to fight you and explain to us why it's not natural now. But even if it's, even if you find a reason to call soy not natural, it's still 90% better than using the paraffin. The paraffin wax is the stuff that black soot you get on your walls and yes. ceilings when you burn candles. That's the chemicals in the paraffin wax. <laughs> yeah. See things I never knew until now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so how many different scents do you carry? Uh, we change all the time, but at any given time, we have about 85 or 90 different fragrances. We keep talking about slimming that down. It's it's overwhelming to try to keep control of. But uh, but every time we think, oh, let's get rid of this, and then we'll, like, stop making it for a week, and then all of a sudden everyone want it. You know what I mean? So so you just got to – it's a lot of variety, man. Yeah, that's cool. And then, all right, what's what's the average price for an award-winning candle? Uh, our, our large jar uh, is 28 bucks. That's not bad at all. See, it's not bad. I keep telling my partner, nice. <laughs> you no. know, inflation. So you can go into one of these stores and it'll be like $50 and so you're getting oh, yeah. nothing but the best stuff. So $28. 
I'm going to buy one from you. So actually, that's a good segue. Where can people find, can people go online and purchase? Shiningsoul.com. Shining, and that's, remember, SOL. I'm going to have this on the screen scrolling as we're talking so people can uh, go on there and buy the best award-winning candle. Come on. Thank you so much. Hello. Right, so I have a couple more questions. I really do appreciate you coming on the show. I'm having a great time. This is so much fun. Um, Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. So uh, I want to go back to the music for a bit. Have any of your songs ever appeared in movies? Movies. Because there's one movie in particular I was I was reading about. I'm not sure if maybe it was your music or you were a part of. Oh, Sharknado. Well, is Sharknado a movie or is it a series? It's movies. Uh, movies. No, yeah. I guess yeah. if you want to get technical, it might be a series, but it's start, yeah, it's yeah. a series of uh, movies. Me yeah. and Brett song, me and Brett song, get your rock on appears in Sharknado. Okay. Uh, the same, the same episode that he's in. Yeah. Uh, it, it, my music's been in tons of TV shows, but I think that's the only movie it's been in. Okay. Very cool. All right. So now what advice would you give to up and coming musicians? Uh, the, the most important advice you give musician or not is to bet on yourself, you know, don't sit around and wait for someone to help. Mm -hmm. Just, just do it. The tools are there for you. I I'm not that old schooler schooler. I hate, I hate the financial side of the streaming industry and how we all got fucked because we did get fucked, but we let that happen to ourselves. Yeah. But the rest of the tools and the rest of the, you know, people still talk about the internet like it's brand new, man. <laughs> you know, uh, iTunes, I downloaded iTunes the day it came out. And I think that was 21 or 22 years ago, right? Maybe 23 yeah. even, right? It's, you know, it's about that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so we're, a quarter, we're a quarter of a century into this. And sometimes you talk to guys my age and they act like it just happened two weeks ago, like the first streaming platform. Yeah. It, you know what I mean? And, uh, um, the tools were out there. I remember when AOL first came out and um, they had a search engine where you could type interests and people that were AOL members that might've had those same interests would come up and list so you could contact them. Kind of like friending someone on Facebook, but it was a much more complicated process, you know? And I would I would spend hours typing Van Halen, Kiss, Poison, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, and anyone would come up, I would just hit them up. Mm-hmm. Hey, I mean, I'm telling thousands of people in days and weeks of doing this. Uh, but to me, it was this incredible tool. Instead of just playing a local bar for 20 of your friends, I all of a sudden had the ability to at least reach the entire world mm-hmm. with my music. As, as, as archaic as that version of that was, I embraced it from day fucking one. And those tools are just bigger and better now. But you have to do it yourself. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what I was saying before. And I said, that's why one of the things I respect about you is that when you have an idea, you don't just talk about it, you actually do it. So like you said, just do it. And I like another good point you made was that it's been around for a while. It's not going anywhere. It's probably going to become even more extreme in the future. So embrace it, find out how you can monetize it. And an example would be more movies, but do you know who Kevin Smith is? He's a guy. All right. So I love Kevin Smith, but even he said, when that first came out, he was like this, I do a lot of shit for free, like podcasts, this and that, but then I'll have other things. People get to know who I am and then they'll buy my other shit. So he goes, I learned to use the media and 
to, to my advantage and he'll do all these free things, but then he'll get people to buy stuff. And for musicians, I think it's good in a way only because maybe I go and say in the seventies and eighties, I go to a record store. I'm like, I don't know. I never heard this band. I'm maybe I don't want to waste my money on this, but now I can stream something and I'll say, Oh my God, these guys are great. Next time they're in town, I'm going to check them out and then I'll buy a shirt. I'll buy some other things from you. So in that way, you might get more people listening to you and say, you know what, when they're in the area, like you, for example, yeah. like, Pete Evick's going to be in Connecticut in December. Can't wait to see him. Yeah. So I think that's good that you, and I agree with you, you have to embrace it. You can't, re, it's not going anywhere. It's not going to suddenly disappear. It's not brand new. So just find a way to work with it. Right. And do it yourself. Don't wait for someone else to do it. Don't wait to get discovered. Get out there and put your put yourself out there. All right. So before we go, I have two more questions. And this one, I'm curious to get an answer on. Who is... Or what is Bobo the Blue Healer? Bobo the Blue Healer. Bobo <laughs> the Blue Healer is uh, my <laughs> my girlfriend's dog, actually. Um, and he's a service dog. I, I don't want to – I usually don't involve – that's her business to tell. But okay. he's, he's a service dog. Okay. But he's a Blue Healer. And if you do your research on Boba, or if you do your research on Blue Healers, they are considered one of the top three smartest – dogs in the world mm -hmm. um and when we got this dog uh she trained it for the purposes but he it, he's so fucking smart it's scary i don't know what to tell you about it it's like it's like watching the raptors in jurassic park learn ah okay it's, it's just like that he uh opens and closes doors he's um he is so I, I, with 100% honesty and certainty i'm telling you so perhaps example i have three different pairs of shoes my boots my vans and my tennis shoes mm -hmm. i can say to him go get my vans he can differentiate and bring me which pair of shoes i'm looking for wow okay that is smart no, it's ridiculous. And there's so much more. I can't even begin to tell you how much more there is. But uh, he's a beautiful looking dog. And he has over 15,000 Instagram fans. <laughs> and, That's uh, funny. and he was the first non-human to ever be invited by NASA to be a uh, to be a non-human ambassador at a rocket launch. <laughs> I love it. He went to rocket launch. There's three different colleges that have entertained studying him because of his intelligence. Uh, and again, you can find he's not one of a kind. His breed's one of a kind. He's he, he, he's certainly special, but you can find there's tons of them. These blue healers that they're like little raptors, man. <clears throat> um, and uh, he is uh, about to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. Wow, congratulations. For the most consecutive ball catches in a row. <coughs> I have to say that Bobo Blue Healer is going to have another Instagram fan. Yeah, Boba, <laughs> right after we end this interview. Boba as in Boba Fett from Star Wars. Yep, yep. <coughs> yeah. All yeah. right. But Boba also is part of the reason I'm still alive. He, uh, COVID was brutal for me, and I love that dog. And he, he kept, he kept, uh, he kept things interesting when it, the world was, got real boring. <laughs> Now, what makes these dogs so incredible? 
I don't know, man. I don't know enough. I, they're they're part of that. There's three of them in the line. There's the uh, Australian catalog, <coughs> Australian Shepherd, and there's one other dog in the group. And for whatever reason, I don't know what it is, man. I don't. I. That's all her thing. Dog yeah. just dog just lives with me, but but it's it's mind blowing to watch. Yeah, I mean, it's mind blowing just to hear. It's so I can't imagine <laughs> actually seeing it. The closest I came to that is my parents when I was growing up had a West Highland White Terrier, and whoever had, was whoever had it before my parents had the dog in shows, and they taught it how to silent bark. So every time it needed to go outside, it would just come up to you. And go, yeah, 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 yeah. It was oh, hilarious. That's cool. yeah, yeah, it was very cool. Yeah, Boba has the buttons, which is real popular now. You can see tons of dogs have these, um, which actually shows the process of just evolution in the animal itself but uh there's a bunch of buttons with different words on it and he knows which buttons which to i want to go out or i want to play or i want water or i want food so he can it, literally you can have a conversation with him wow yeah. <laughs> i feel i feel kind of dumb compared to boba it, it's like that movie conga do you remember that movie conga oh, i love that movie michael gray amy good gorilla it's a lot yes. like yeah it's a lot <laughs> like that yeah <laughs> all right i'm definitely gonna be checking this out after we end this interview yeah so I have one more question for you, but I just want to say once again, thanks a lot for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. I love your music. Congratulations on all your success. Oh, thank you so much, man. And I apologize if I'm, I, I was uh, brutally sick yesterday. I was kind of down for the count. I'm still getting over it. So if I'm a little soft-spoken or tired, I apologize, man. No. Well, you know what? I, I appreciate you coming on the show because I know you and I have been going back and forth, as I mentioned earlier. So the fact that you're on here and you sounded great. So I'm no no worries at all you definitely sounded clear and uh in, in that condition i appreciate you taking the time out of your days so i know you got the candle company you got music you have everything else going on yeah. so i appreciate it so before we go though i have one last question yes, what's next and where can people find you well the new book is what's next yes um with brett there's gonna be a big announcement about what we're doing with brett uh, in the next couple of weeks, that's huge uh, for him as a solo artist. I'm happy for him and happy for what we're going to get to do, but it's his story to tell, but keeping an eye out for uh, exciting news about the Brett Michaels band during the summer. Um, and uh, I, I hope to write some new music. And again, I, in December, I'm doing that acoustic tour all over the country with Chad from Pastor Pussycat. Uh you know, but right now I'm about to go into the holiday season with the candles. So that takes focus because retail season during the holiday is, you know, all hands on deck for that. Yes, I can imagine. All right. Well, once again, congratulations and all. And I look forward to meeting you in person in December. I can't wait, buddy. Thank you so much. Uh, you're very welcome. That wraps up the latest episode of The Claws Corner. A huge thanks goes out to guitarist, singer, songwriter, producer, author, and entrepreneur Pete Epic for taking time out of his busy schedule to be on the show. Really do appreciate it. I also need to thank John Bristol of Emily Productions for without his superb editing every week, this show would not be possible. So it's always greatly appreciated. And lastly, but definitely not least, I need to thank you, the viewer, for always tuning in. Enjoy your day, everyone.
a sudden I hear, bim, bim. <laughs> What's a diaphragm again? <laughs> ha! We caught one. They're supposed to be weird. Oh, yeah, no. If you say so. I've always wanted to be in a movie. Waiting around for all the... Waiting around for all the...